Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. You know, when the world can feel more divided than ever, whether it's things like polarizing politics or climate change or economic uncertainty, ethnography reminds us to come back down to earth and into the lives of people. You know, because the truth is, if we want to see systemic change and address issues that are larger than ourselves, we actually have to start with everyday experience and be willing to go against the grain or challenge the status quo. Now, Thibault Mannequin has a habit of putting himself into uncomfortable situations of the extraordinary kind. In his new book, Larger Than Yourself, he chronicles the various moments in his life where seeking the uncomfortable was the path to not only his growth, but increased opportunities for others. At the heart of this, in each of these stories, is this rebellion against those who warn that you can't or tell them no. And hearing these phrases lets him know when he is pushing hard enough to do something that may in fact be truly revolutionary. If you're not struggling, then what you're trying to do is probably too easy to begin with. Well, this is perhaps laudable. Such an approach can easily become misguided. Putting oneself into uncomfortable situations can, in many ways, become self-serving. Such an approach can slip into a person using others to feel growthful or even perhaps being a thrill seeker. To embed this action into impact, however, it becomes more important to align the idea with the desires and goals of those who are actually living in those settings. We have to build and make change from the inside out, getting input from the various stakeholders that exist in the space in which we are seeking to make a difference. Ultimately, this means a rebalancing of power, whether it be power in an organization, in some larger social institution, or even a community setting. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Leaders need to lead from behind and empower those who they are seeking to have follow them. The question becomes how to make people more equal in this relationship. While a CEO and a janitor may have different roles and responsibilities, they are not unequal in their tasks. Sanitation workers, not physicians, would have curtailed the plague. Physicians could perhaps treat symptoms, but sanitation workers could remove the causes. And during a global pandemic, we all know the important role that janitors and sanitation workers play in sanitizing services to make it safe for all of us to live. Thus, each has a role to play that is not any less important than the other. Ultimately, each has a perspective as well to add and value to contribute. Organizations and leaders need to do better to make that redistribution of power a reality. And so we're really excited to talk with Thibaut about his work, both in the past and currently, and how he approaches this effort through his organization, Seawall, and ideas where we all can be part of that change. Hope you enjoy the chat. sad day, actually, uh, because I don't know, you, your book is a lot about basketball, but did you get a chance to watch cricket at all when you were down in South Africa? You know, I got really into cricket down there. Uh, right. A fascinating sport. We actually, the first cricket match I saw, the World Cup of cricket was in South Africa. And I, I remember watching that. I remember <laughs> while I was in Bahrain teaching, and I remember watching that while I was in Bahrain, and that's how I got into cricket. So we, uh, um, I was like my second week in South Africa. I didn't know up from down and all I hear is, is the cricket world cups. And so we have to find a way to go and there's right. no way to get tickets. It's been sold out probably for years at that point. And we made fake press credentials. <laughs> right? And somehow we ended up in the sky box of the owner of uh, one of the big companies down there watching like two days worth of cricket. Uh, no idea what any of the rules were, but it had a great time. And that was our intro to the sport. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but A.B. de Villiers retired today. Uh, great, great South African cricket uh, player, staple of the Indian Premier League with the team I like to follow, Royal Challengers Bangalore. Just a tremendous batsman. 
he announced on Twitter today that he is retiring from the sport. And I got to admit, I had a little bit of the feels. Mm. How old is a how old is a cricket player when they retire? He's thirty seven, but I think that uh, looking at the physical makeup of some of them, you can have a long career. Yeah, because it, it appears to be a lot of uh, a lot of standing around, much like baseball. <laughs> but yes, it was, it was watching when it was interesting because I was watching the the cricket World Cup in when I was in teaching in Bahrain, and what I found so fascinating about it was that I'd be in my room. And most of the workers on the island are from India or Pakistan or wherever, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, wherever. We would, all, all heirs around me being a, a white Westerner and them being a worker from India would fall away when the game was up. Mm-hmm. And we would just be people watching the game. And I always found that to be a really powerful moment where even if a person was you know, straightening out my room and the game was on, they would pause and stop and stop being you know, uh, you know, maintenance or, you know, house cleaning. And we would just be cricket fans in that moment, watching someone bowl or watching someone bat hit a six, you know, hit a boundary of some kind or make a catch. And that was just like really cool to see. And that's how I started falling in love with watching cricket, which I still do to this day, watch cricket. Well, it's the, speaks to the power of sports to bring us together as human beings. You know, and I, uh, I remember I was in South Africa the day that they announced that South Africa was going to get the World Cup for soccer. Mm-hmm. And it was probably like a Tuesday at 11 a.m., you know, and somehow the news goes viral on national TV and radio. And every single person, it felt like every person quit their job at that moment. Right. You know, like everybody left their office buildings. Everyone was sprinting through the streets, like ripping their shirts off, going to like buy their son's soccer balls to like put in a little extra training so that maybe in the eight years before the cup showed up, they'd have a chance of making the team. It was an amazing thing to see. I just got done reading a book um, about uh, um, Boris Spassky and Bobby Fischer and the chess tournament in Reykjavik, you know, the chess, you know, the, the, the world, you know, the championship, you know, the chess championship. And it was interesting, right? Because on the one hand, it was a chess match between Fischer and Spassky. On the other hand, it was this cold war thing between the United States and, and the Soviet union. But at the same time, neither were representatives of their country and how they act. I mean, Boris Spassky was very anti unsoviet in his Sovietness. And Fisher certainly wasn't uh, playing for the home team per se. So it was a fascinating read because it had all these different layers and levels of sport as larger stage upon which national and, you know, and antagonisms play out, but also how like a moment like that started a revolution, right? People started buying chess boards. People started to do things around the sport, which they never did before, almost like, you know, uh, the Queen's Gamut on Netflix did. And so when you were, you know, when you were with the peace players in South Africa, you know, did that really spur a a basketball renaissance or birth, not even a renaissance, because that would be a rebirth, but a birth of basketball in the country? So, So what was fascinating is that basketball tried to get a foothold in South Africa before we showed up. There was a program called... I'm never going to remember what it was called. Basketball for South Africa or something like that. It's not a catchy they, name, really. Basketball for yeah, South Africa. It probably wasn't the name. <laughs> but they, they, they showed up, um, and, and this is going to highlight the difference of the two approaches. They showed up to make money, mm-hmm. right? Um, they saw basketball as this profit center. And every decision they made, every clinic they rolled out, Every coach they hired was with the idea of like, how much money can we make? How much can we squeeze out of the government in an attempt to bring this sport? So it was less about the sport than it was actually about profit, right? Hmm. So um, in the corruption that existed within that organization, it obviously didn't make it very far. Um, But what it did is it started the creative juices of this is a new sport. And, you know, basketball being a new sport in South Africa was huge because it wasn't connected to the racial affiliations that the other sports have. Mm. So soccer is a very black sport. Rugby is a very white sport. Um, Cricket would be a fairly Indian sport down there. Uh, And basketball comes in as this new sport. And, you know, we show up at the tail end of 
the first attempt at basketball to have gotten some sort of traction down there. And we showed up with a completely different context, right? The peace players program was all around. How can we use sports in our case, basketball to bridge divide, develop leaders and change perceptions. And it was because we had gone about it through that leading with our purpose over our profit. I want to say for us, it almost didn't matter what the score of the game was, uh, how many jump shots a kid could hit, how well they could dribble. All of those things came naturally. You know, it was around how if you rolled out a round object between a white kid and a black kid who had never, ever met before, Hmm. you know, and you kind of sat back and watched like what would happen. Right. How did you find like, I I think so. So one congratulations because we're celebrating 20 years, I think this year, right. With with peace play, which is awesome. Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) You know? Um, And, and so both, I think both incredible to see that um, a social enterprise can have legs and and, and like have strength and survive, you know, for, for a, a good amount of time, you know, I think it's a testament that we can think, you know, more wisely and well about, you know, purpose over profit for, for business organizations themselves, but then also, you know, the social enterprise behind it in terms of how do we bring communities together and kind of bridge divides. And, and you know, kind of the, as we're opening up here, thinking about the, the question of sports is such an interesting way to do that. Uh, because, right, you know, as, as you both were noting early on that there's something about there's, uh, you know, us in the game and watching the game and enjoying the, the kind of the experience of sport together. And so, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about these two pieces in, in you know, as you, as you reflect on 20 years with this organization, you know, what has been some of the, the most surprising elements that have really you've seen grown, that you've seen big? I mean, one thing that's incredible is that this is now a global movement, right? This is this is began in South Africa, but then now it's in, in multiple, multiple places. And so um, how has that experience been like? You know, what, is it, what are you reflecting on now that we're 20 years into it? So it's, it's interesting. I, I was with the organization for the first six years, and then for the last 14 or 15 years, I've gone off and, and done something else. Mm-hmm. But I recorded a message to the organization yesterday, which is going to be sent out through social media and their email blast today, really in anticipation of this larger than yourself book that I've written coming out um, mm-hmm. and thanking right. them and really praising them for the incredible progress that they've made. You know, we started off and we were in Northern Ireland and South Africa, um, really just driven by passion, right? A total startup organization. Um, and along the way, there are incredible failures, but like massive successes as well. Uh, one like tipping point moment was getting the call from Nelson Mandela's foundation somewhat early on in the, uh, in the growth of the program where we were just scrapping for money and more importantly, scrapping for credibility, right? Um, Mm. We knew that sports could unite, but it wasn't until we got the call from Mandela saying that he's a huge believer in the power of sports tonight. You guys have obviously seen the movie Invictus, right? Mm -hmm. And are aware of the story of Mandela being released and coming out and supporting rugby and the South African national team winning on South African. So it was just amazing. And to go from Mandela's uh, to not having much credibility at all and then having Nelson Mandela being a huge supporter and having his name behind what we're doing. At that point, it kind of felt like we were in the beginning stages of becoming real, right? And mm-hmm. when the program began, into, we were invited to expand to Cyprus and we were invited to expand the program into the Middle East. And then that was just the like tipping point of, uh, of, of how the program would grow. But I mean, I talk a lot about, about this and I think a lot about this is how do small ideas grow, right? Mm-hmm. What is that differentiator between an idea just not really getting very far uh, and, and an idea really growing at, 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 at huge speeds? And, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll hop into that, but it's really the importance of sharing in the authorship and ownership of what is getting created. You know, mm-hmm. we never showed up to a country. We never showed up to South Africa in the beginning and say, hey, we've got this basketball here and we're going to solve like hundreds or thousands of years of divide and racial tension. And as a result of us being on your soil, like we're going to change the way your country's worked. It was the complete opposite, right? You'd show up like really humbly, right? Like we know how to dribble a ball, got a little bit of infrastructure, but our role is to be quietly by behind the scenes, helping you all shine, right? Helping you all hold the program into something that only works for your country. It was fascinating. Every country was different. In South Africa, I'd say equally as important to using the sport to bridge divides was using the sport to educate around HIV and AIDS. Um, right. And 
And then it just continued to change in every of the countries that we would end up showing up at. One of my uh, former colleagues who's now passed, um, he had a phrase because he used to to take students to the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana. And the title of his class was not to study, but to learn. You know, and there's this dynamic of if I go in there to, especially as as an ethnographer, Adam's an ethnographer, ethnography has gotten a bad rap because very often it was white people with beards who went into, the men had beards. I don't know if the women did. Um, They would go into these environments to to study people, to objectify, to essentialize, right? And then to extract and remove, when not to enrich. But the idea to learn, the the way at least I was taught to be an ethnographer, is that you're, me as a researcher, is the least knowledgeable person in the room. And I need to go in there, forget your PhD, forget your classes, be there as a humble observer and a person who's willing to participate and engage. And, you know, the stories about, you know, you killing a goat or, you know, killing a chicken, you know, this idea of, or even in Baltimore. And by the way, is it Baltimore or how do you say it? Baltimore or Baltimore? Like, like, can we- <laughs> it depends who you, it depends who you ask. Uh, it's, uh, it's Baltimore, but, uh, if you're, uh, if you're from here, you'd, you'd roll that, uh, T into a D a little bit more. If I'm not from there and try to do that, does it make me look worse or, you know, does it earn me respect as, you know, as we talk about trying to fit in with your surroundings, since I'm not from there, if I try to appropriate that pronunciation, does that get me points or do I uh, lose points? You get a huge hug. Yeah, oh, well that, we, uh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, Tebow, we give participation. I, I, could, <laughs> I could use a hug right now, honestly. So, so this idea of going into Baltimore or wherever and being like, you know, I, I just want to understand the world in which you live and understand how I might be of service. And, and also in the process, you know, I'm, you're, I'm learning from you and becoming, you know, you're, you're of service to me as well. It's not just a one-way street. There's reciprocity there. Yeah, it's uh, in its simplest form. Um, it's, I'm a dad. I've got two kids, um, uh, 10 and 12. And I always thought when I had my first son that what an honor it is to like shape the life of a little human. Right. Um, and quickly, quickly, you realize that they're going to shape your life more than you're going to shape theirs. But that realization changes the dynamic. Right. And right. I don't know that everybody realizes that. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Right. Right. Going, going into um, to study and but to, to, not to study, but to learn. And I think that's that's the difference when we can approach life that way uh, very humbly um, from this, the simplest thing of, of course, the power dynamic is us over our kids. Right. But that can be flipped and change the experience for them growing up, giving them the leash and the uh, um, and the experience to kind of move forward on their own and know that uh, we're learning as much from them as they are from us. The mistake I made was we had three. So now we're outnumbered. Um, someone described it to me as when you go from two to three, you go from playing man to man to zone. You just cover space in the house. And like, you know, you call off when someone's going into your zone, you know, so-and-so is coming out of the kitchen into the front room. Okay. Got him. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that you're in charge, but it doesn't feel like that anymore. Let's be honest. The third kid gets no attention. He's like he or she is like, especially if you get into fourth and fifth, like they're they're out there to fend on their own. Their their siblings are raising them more than you are as parents, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's when you're talking about this idea of of shaping lives. You know, in in ethnography, the notion was you don't want to go native, right? You want to maintain your objectivity. Well, what if your objectivity to begin with is horrible? What if the position mm-hmm. from which you're approaching it is no is no great shakes because you've been trained in this you know, sort of like a Western perspective in, in understanding the world, these, these lenses that we carry with us. And maybe you should go a little native because maybe you might be better off for it. That was the, that was the biggest challenge that we faced around the globe with peace players. You know, we would have these incredible sessions with kids, whether it was for a couple hours, bringing a bunch of Israelis into the West Bank or bringing a bunch of white kids into the black township in South Africa or Greek Cypriots to the Turkish Cypriot side, uh, whether it was for a day, a couple hours, a, a weekend retreat. 
and you'd have these massive breakthroughs, right? And then the kids would get sent back to their homes, into their villages, into their cultures. And their parents would break down everything that they had just learned. Not even learned, mm-hmm. but experience, right? And it's this, this older generation. We are so stuck in our ways. Um, and we really inhibit the growth of, this, of the future generation uh, across the board. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that and that, that resonates. That is, I think, one of the big challenges that we face. And so, I think, you know, to kind of build on this idea in terms of, so you know, in in your your book, larger than yourself, you are helping us think through both your story, but then also what are some of the principles that you've learned in this process. And so, I think uh, that that kind of hits deep, you know, for us as ethnographers. But then, just you're, you're right that as we're contemplating what is the the future of this planet, right? You know, from an environmental standpoint, in terms of what's the role of business in the world and and how can we think about purpose and profit? We're kind of rethinking a lot of these questions as we're moving into into our next spaces. And so, um, you know, I'd love to kind of think through if if folks are are finding ways, how can we find empowerment in, in new paths forward in terms of, you know, building communities together, you know? And so sports is one way that we've seen this happen. You've also done it in really interesting ways with think through real estate, also in your your program with Seawall, and so um, you know, let's think a little bit through some of the these the principles that you've broken. That you have notions of kind of getting out of your comfort zone, or the idea of how do we put purpose first when we're thinking through what do we even build, right? And so, can you, I, I mean, so for me again, um, maybe maybe Seawall might be one way to think about this too. In terms of tell us a bit about that story of how you found your your you know self into to noting and thinking how is real estate broken in terms of who has access to, to buildings, to homes and in some of the principles that you derived from that in terms of how you, how you build your work? Yeah. So I think I'll tell a story to try to highlight this, this point, right? So for my, and throughout most of my twenties, I lived around the world, helping to grow the peace players program, which as we've talked about, went to war torn countries and use sports to bridge divides. And I, and I went to, and I lived in places that, and I did things that, most people said I shouldn't do. Hmm. Most people said I wouldn't be safe doing. Um, and the, most people said wouldn't work, right, to begin with. So after living in all of these really divided countries, uh, somewhat unexpectedly in 2006, I ended up back in Baltimore, uh, which is my hometown. And I ended up out of my parents' house the first night I had dinner. I was just kind of reconnecting. And I ended up sleeping out there, or at least trying to sleep. And I and I sat in bed, or late, late in bed, and tossed and turned the whole night. Because every time that I would come back to America, I had this nagging feeling. Something was really bothering me. And I couldn't quite wrap my head or my heart around what it was. And something about actually being back, likely for good, uh, amplified that feeling more than I ever sensed it. And, and I literally didn't sleep the whole night. And I woke up early the next morning. I got out of bed and grabbed my keys in my car. And I was like mad and frustrated and jet lagged and going through culture shock. And I got in my car and I just ended up driving. I had no destination in mind. And then I pulled off on North Avenue in West Baltimore and headed into West Baltimore. Um, and I pulled over at the intersection of Pennsylvania and North Avenue. And this was a part of town that I've been made to believe my entire life that I wouldn't be safe in and that I wouldn't be welcome in and that I didn't belong in. And as I got ready to get out of my car and walk around the way that I had done all over the world, I kind of flinched. I paused. Right. And I was like, am I going to be safe doing this? Right. And I remember it was like the, I had this flashback of six or seven years of experiences about of all of the times that I had gotten out of my comfort zone and the learning that took place as a result of that. Right. Mm. And I had two options in that moment. I could have, uh, turned my car back on and drove in back to the comfort of my home um, and the bubble that I uh, live in um, and had a conversation with somebody about it. But I knew that I hadn't um, had the experience that I needed to have. And I hadn't pushed myself far enough out of my comfort zone yet. And I had realized that from all the work that we did around the world is it's like, that's the only place where growth happens. Mm. when we're able to get out of our bubbles, where we're able to walk in someone else's shoes when we're able to put, push ourselves out of our comfort zones. And I, so I got out of my car and I started walking in and, and I saw all of the things that society told me that I would say, right? Mm. I saw the uh, vacant homes, the boarded up buildings, the liquor stores on the corner, the drug dealers, uh, the clients of those drug dealers. Um, but I knew that there was more to this community that I was missing and I continued my walk. And I had 
two realizations that came to me in that moment, right? The first one was that our country, America, and particularly my city of Baltimore, are more divided than all these so-called war-torn countries. Right. We have an inability to have open and honest conversations uh, with people that don't look like us, right? And that it mm. was a ticking time bomb. It had gone on for too long. And if it continued, it was only going to get exponentially worse. And then the second realization standing there was that the real estate industry, right? The control and ownership of land is the most powerful connected industry on the planet. It mm. touches every single one of us, every single moment of every single day. The homes we live in, the streets we drive on, the parks we play in, the schools we send our kids to, they're all manipulated and controlled by the people that have the authority, right? To historically, whoever had the biggest guns and the most money made those decisions. And I'm not sure that it's much different today. Right. And so, so, this, so this realization hit me that as powerful and connected as real estate is, it's historically done more to divide us than bring us together. Oh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm fresh off this, like understanding that industries can get reimagined. We talk a little bit about the basketball program that came to South Africa and tried to make money and failed. And then us coming in and trying to reimagine it so that it was less about the basketball it was more about the lessons learned along the way. Mm. And I started to ask myself in that moment, wow, like could something as powerful as real estate be reimagined? Could we flip it upside down where buildings actually were used to empower communities, you know, unite cities and, and, mm. and eventually help to launch really powerful ideas? Yeah, it's, it's awesome because, you know, I, I come from Detroit and, you know, it's, it's one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Mm. And growing up in Detroit, doing my PhD in Detroit, um, doing like urban sociology, you understand what was meant when Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg said, you know, the, the roads are racist, right? <laughs> that mm. they don't end up where they are by accident, that these things are planned out by people who have power to maintain control by creating certain physical realities that then become manifest in social disconnectedness and disempowerment, right? I mean, the, and it's, it's not an opinion. This is just, you know, going back to a sports metaphor scoreboard. This is just what happened. And, you know, they're, they're looking at blockbusting or looking at redlining or looking at any of these other kinds of practices that real estate was part of. You probably couldn't have picked much worse of an industry <laughs> as, mm -hmm. you know, that that's really on the down low. I mean, people think about the arms industry. They think about the pharmaceutical industry. They think about all these industries as, as you know, nefarious players. But the real estate industry, you know, has a special place in hell <laughs> in many <laughs> respects. But, you know, because you don't think of it that way. You just think about, you know the real estate broker as this, you know, as, as your neighbor or as somebody who's in the community, but the structure of it, the ethos of it as a purveyor of all that's wrong in, in our culture as both embodying it and, and furthering it really is not well appreciated by people in society itself and rant. I apologize for going off on a rant there, but I, you got me riled up. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a it's an interesting way to think about it, Gary. I I, I say that uh, we couldn't have picked a better industry, you know. Right. And I think too often in life we take the the path of least resistance, you know. Right. And what better industry could we use to shake up than the one that somewhat silently, like it it it's. It, it crept up on so many of us, right? right. Um, uh, there was so much intentionality behind so many closed door conversations that happened. Um, uh, and it just became this thing that was too big to fix, right? Mm. And uh, so what better industry to, to take on than the one that's historically done so much harm? And so how did, like, uh, I, I like, I enjoy the story in, in the book too, in terms of how you found this tin can factory as the place to do this with. And so tell me, tell me a bit about that. Like how, <laughs> now what was that experience like? And like, this is the place and, and the banker's like, are you sure this is what you want to do? So we, so we launched this company and one of the things we take, the company's called Seawall. And one of the things we take great pride in is that not a thing that we've ever done has really been our idea. It's been a result of listening deeply to end users and mm. community. And as a result of some work that my dad, who was, was and is my business partner, had done in public education, we realized that there was an opportunity and a real need to provide incredible housing at big discounts for teachers. 
right? Mm. Across the country, teachers are showing up to new cities, stoked to get into the classroom, stoked to start changing lives and having their own lives changed along the way. Um, and what they get hit with real quick is the reality of the complications of urban education, right? Mm. And of moving into a new city. And when they're not living with like-minded people and when they're paying too much in rent and when they don't really understand the living decisions they're making, they're going to get burnt out, right? And then they're going to mm -hmm. quit. And so we had enough of these teachers coming up to us and said, hey, how cool would it be if there was a really neat located building where you could house some teachers in and it could be nice affordable rents? And we loved the idea. And we were doing the same thing with a bunch of nonprofits who were spread out all over town, also helping the school system. So we were looking for like a little kind of four unit apartment building or a tiny little 5,000 square foot office building as a first project that, that, that would have been the right size first mm -hmm. project for our like startup company. Right. Yeah. And we struck out, we couldn't find anything. We were looking at all these kind of like fancy neighborhoods and a friend of ours called and said, Hey, there's this building on the corner of Howard and 26th street in this neighborhood of Remington in Baltimore city. I never heard of the neighborhood of Remington by name. Right. Um, and I grew up in Baltimore city. And he invited us to come for a tour of the building. He said that there were a couple of developers from DC who had bought the building. Um, the community had run him out of town because they tried to force high-end condos on right. the neighborhood. Right. Um, the, the neighborhood pushed back. The neighborhood had always been kind of anti-development. At least that was the appearance. And our friend goes on to say that every other developer in town has walked through the building and nobody wants to touch it because nobody thinks it can work. But mm. do you guys want to come have a look, right? <laughs> so the previous developers had lost the building back to the bank. They were starting the foreclosure process and naively we show up and it's a little hard to paint like clearly the picture of what we saw that day. We pulled over on 26th street and there's this massive hundred thousand square foot looming four story tin can manufacturing building, 150 years old. Mm. Every window is completely boarded up. There's trees growing out of the roof. There's bricks falling out yeah. onto the, onto the sidewalk. The 26th street had more cars with smashed windows and glass that felt like it had been there for weeks um, mm. than actually working cars, right? The building was surrounded by lots of abandoned homes. There was a lifeless old tire shop on the other side of the road. And so this was like our welcome into this, you know, this community is the first thing we, we see. And we kind of looked at each other, my dad and I like, oh, what, what are we getting ourselves into? And will this idea of this company ever really work, right? Like the doubt starts to creep in. So the banker's there and our buddy Sam's there and they take us to the back of the building and there's this chain around this door. The chain was like, felt like you could like hold a submarine to a pier, right? <laughs> And he like struggles with the like apple size lock to get it undone. He finally does. And he kicks open this massive wood door, 150 year old door. And he's got this like wee flashlight that he pulls pieces pitch black inside with the exception of like a couple rays of light coming in through somewhere where the, where the, uh, where the bricks had fallen out. And there's bats flying around. There's pigeons flying around. And we start this tour through this old building and the banker starts going off on it. He's like, this place sucks. You wouldn't catch me here after dark. No one would ever want to live in this terrible place in this terrible neighborhood. That's, thing hell, you do is that's an amazing negotiating tactic right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it, uh, it's a, it's a tangent, but um, it goes to show the difference between somebody thinking they actually own it and somebody thinking right. that they're an employee of a large organization. Right. This guy didn't mm -hmm. care. He knew that the bank was going to lose money on it. Like he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a longer conversation, mm -hmm. but he's going off on it. And so we're on the tour and this, you know, the negative bankers like in our ear and I just started to tune them out and we're walking around and I'm like, this building's amazing. Like high ceilings, like exposed brick, like some places mm -hmm. where the floor was salvageable, like 150 year old floorboards, right. Yeah. Um, massive window openings. And so, you know, I just, I, it, it was a familiar narrative. I'd heard it all over the world. This idea of like, can't and no, like mm. no way you're getting white kids into a black township. No wage, no way you're getting Palestinians into Israel. No way you're going to move the needle on the HIV AIDS narrative. And it was, it was kind of that same thing. Um, and for me, it had gotten to the point that that no, that rhetoric had become, it meant that we were onto something, right? Mm, meant yeah. that like, 
um, there were enough people that couldn't see further than what was in front of them um, and not able to see what like something actually could be with a bit of creativity and imagination. So the tour ends and we're back on the street and the banker leaves, thank God. And my dad had a similar experience in the building. We kind of like hugged it out and we knew that this was going to be the building for the first project, right? Mm-hmm. We knew this was going to be where the teachers and the nonprofits were going to live and work. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, and, and I'm happy to share more of the story because it certainly continues to go on from there. But uh, it was a really transformational moment for us um, beginning to see through the, through the cracks. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I, I appreciate this idea too, that the, the reincarnate notion that you just mentioned there in terms of uh, how often when we're thinking about, you know, the, this, this idea of where do these small ideas come from? How do they grow? And then that you hear often so much this, this can't know throughout your story. And, and that um, isn't, it becomes this clue that we're onto something, right? That could actually right. work. And I think that that's super important that, that really struck me. Um, and I think our listeners too, as this idea of if we're trying to, um, you know, move the needle as it were, right? Even in whatever small way that we might with our communities or if we're trying a new project, um, recognizing that can't know isn't isn't a wall or it's a barrier. It's like Ryan Holiday would call it the obstacle is the way, you know? And like this idea too, like how do we give ourselves the, the permission to press forward? And, but what do we do when we see that can't know? And so it's, an, I think, it, I don't know, that, that, that really struck me as something, uh, as, as a powerful lesson um, to take away, but then, um, and, and kind of recognize I guess the flip side too, if, if we're not hearing can't know ever, then maybe we're not, we're not pushing hard enough, you know? So to your point about comfort mm-hmm. zone too, it's like, we actually need to, we need to hear that. I think. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Um, and look, I, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm, I look at the nose as lessons. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, so, so I'll continue the story. Um, we decide we're going to buy the building basically in that moment. Right. Um, and over the next like two weeks, as we're like finalizing the paperwork, we bring down our most trusted advisors, accountants, actual developers, right? People who know what they're doing and talking about. And we take them for this tour of the building and they're just like the banker. It's like, this, <laughs> this won't work. Uh, you'll never be able to provide discounts for teachers. There's too much work to do. It's the project's too expensive and too big. And you guys don't know what you're doing. Right. We brought our wives down. My dad tells this amazing story. He brought my mom for a tour and I was there too. And shows her around. She's quiet, which means she's judging and being passive aggressive. And he, uh, on the ride home, she's like, Donald, of all of the dumb things you've done in your life, if you buy this building, it will be the dumbest. Of all the dumb things. (laughs) There's been many, but this one is the one. and, uh, and she, he claims that for like a week, she refused to sleep in the same room with them after like we actually bought the building. Um, but the, the, the nose helped us understand that this was going to be an incredibly heavy lift mm. and that it was going to have to be brought to life in a very different way. Right. If you had brought all your friends down, they're like, yes, this is amazing. Go for it. There's no challenge. There's no struggle. It's easy, right? It probably means others could have done it. Um, mm. it, there's probably nothing new to it. There's probably nothing revolutionary about it. Right. Mm. And so all those no's build up and you're like, okay, so obviously this has to happen because enough people think it can't. And two, in order to do that, we have to build it from the inside out. Right. right? And that's something mm. that's, a, that's something that we had really worked hard on and grown the peace letters program. And what we mean by that is that the end users, right. Mm. Uh, for us, the people are going to be living and working in the building, the community that the building was in um, and the team of guardian angels, right. Uh, all had to have the same sense of pride of ownership and authorship and was, was going to get created if the impossible was going to come to life. And so we mm-hmm. started with our end users, right. Our teachers, we send out this like massive email to like a thousand different teachers throughout Baltimore city, inviting them to come for a tour and a focus group of this opportunity. Um, the, e- the email said something about like anybody interested in creating like rad, uh, affordable housing for teachers, meet us on the corner of Howard 26th street. So we're sitting there naively at 9am on a Saturday expecting a couple hundred people to show up, right? Like who wouldn't come for that by like nine fifteen, the last of maybe 10 teachers has trickled in, Right. Mm-hmm. So already like my heart sunk. I'm like, Oh, maybe we are wrong. Right. And so my dad gives this incredible speech. Excuse me. My dad gives this incredible speech. He's like, um, welcome. Um, we are so honored to have you here. 
collectively, we've heard from your peers that there's an opportunity to create the country's first center for educational excellence. We have no idea what we are doing. Um, we think this building might be a good fit. Um, we'd like to take you for a tour on it of it and see what you think. Uh, and if you're interested, we can keep, continue the conversation. So we go to the back, we open the same enormous lock, kick open the same door, hand out flashlights. There's still bats and pigeons flying all over the place. Three quarters of the building, you still can't walk in. And different from the dozen previous tours, we weren't the ones leading it. The teachers were literally effortlessly, effortlessly, effortlessly skipping through the building, right? Yeah. Pointing out the amazing window sizes, the cool brick, the like courtyard in the middle of the building, which you couldn't even see because there's so many weed trees growing out of it. And they kept saying, how cool will this be when we pull this off, right? right. The, vibe was, the vibe was completely different because of the way that my dad had introduced the opportunity, right? He had leveled the playing field, right? We weren't a developer coming in telling you what we were going to give you. Uh, we, we were, uh, uh, geez, just like passionate listen, listeners of other people's dreams. And so the teachers end the tour and they're back on the street and they're like, this is going to be amazing. We invited them over the course of the next 12 months to be on our design team. So they sat with their architects, they designed their own apartments, they chose their own amenities. We let them choose their own rents, right? Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, wow. what, de what, what, what developer does that? And <laughs> yeah. as a, re as a result of that, we started to build this groundswell with the end users. And we did the same thing with the, with the nonprofits that wanted to participate in the building. And then we did the same thing with the community. We went to the first neighborhood association meeting, like super humble, like, Hey, there's a group of teachers and nonprofits that want to create the first center for educational excellence. We've looked in neighbors all over the city. There's an abandoned building that's been vacant for 30 years, which everybody was fully aware of. Because um, mm. they had just kicked out the previous developers. Um, would you be interested in, in joining the conversation to see if it's a good fit for your community? Right. And over the course of the next few months, we gave countless tours as many times as people wanted to come through uh, from the neighborhood. We gave the, the, the same tour and, and they took the ownership the same way. We did the same thing with the like team of guardian angels for guardian angels for us. That's who are the people you can place in your corner who have failed more times than you'll ever succeed, right? Who have been there and who have done that, who can help steer you in the right direction without changing your passion and purpose along the way, right? Changing your narrative. And so slowly but surely, like the idea came together. Um, and, I, I, and I think it came together. Um, and I think I know that we closed financing and filled this massive gap in the capital structure um, because we had created this groundswell, right? By the time that we actually closed financing and started construction, nine months before we finished the building, um, every single apartment had been fully leased and all of the office space was committed. When we finished, there was a waiting list of over 300 teachers waiting wow. to get in and a couple dozen nonprofits that we had run out of space for. And it's because we had shared the idea from the beginning, right? It right. wasn't us coming in saying, this is what we're going to do. It was around how can we collectively like bring the impossible to life. Yeah, I've definitely been in those rooms. Um, my, my dissertation stuff was on Arab-owned liquor stores in Detroit and the relationships that formed across the counters, right? And as part of that, I was involved in a number of community organizations around, you know, food deserts, food quality, um, issues around grocery stores and whatnot in, the, in, these, in these neighborhoods. And I say all that to say, you go in those rooms with an idea of what you're going to do they will let you know really quickly that they have some things to say and some ideas that you should probably listen to. And there's nothing worse than kicking off a new initiative by going in and telling folks what you're, what you're going to do without asking them first what it is that they want to do. Because even, even though your name might be on the deed, in their minds, it's their community. And it's, you know, they would always say about the, the, the liquor stores, you know, our store, our grocery store. Our, you know, our part, you know, Detroit, we say party store, our party store. Didn't matter whose name was on the lead, on the deed, who owned it. It was the communities. And, you, you know, it also goes back to the sense of like in South Africa, a sense of, you know, community ownership versus individual ownership, that we own it together, right? And that as we have to be involved together as caretakers and developers of this, of this shared future, if we're going to be successful. 
Gary, how did you choose that topic? That's a fascinating topic for a dissertation. Uh, I'm old. It was the 1990s, you know, and Rodney King had just happened, um, you know, and you had the 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 issues in the in the liquor stores in in um, Compton, right, and the grocery stores with the Koreans, and that that had broken out. There had been a number of stories of immigrant ownership, immigrant-owned stores in African American communities. And it started as a research paper for a class on race because I'm Arab American and I always knew about these stores. And I came into these looking for understanding not the problems that existed. There was plenty of literature on that. I wanted to know how people formed relationships across the counter, right? And going to your point, it was from these very, no one studied the small talk in the liquor stores. People studied and spent a lot of time on the problems, the antagonisms, the conflicts. No one studied how people walked in every day, said, hey, how you doing? Oh, not bad. My mom's been in the hospital. I hope she feels better. All right. Thanks a lot. See you tomorrow. All right. See you later. That's huge. And I remember advisors saying, oh, that's not a big deal. That interaction didn't last long enough to be significant. I'm like, it's out of that, that these relationships of trust and reciprocity and connection, because now they're sharing stories about their parents, about their kids, about you know their lives, and you get a sense of how out of these these moments, a future is possible because people are no longer seeing themselves as an us and them, but as a we. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of things that c- come to mind, but the the word the, uh, intangibles, uh, which you know we're a society that's so driven by statistics and data. Um, and it's those intangibles that are priceless that if we're not careful, we'll lose, you know, Mm there's a, uh, there's a, a a Zulu saying, um, that some say is overplayed. I say, isn't used enough, which is Ubuntu, right? This concept Mm -hmm. of I am, I am because we are. Um, and I, uh, I think that that speaks to exactly what, what you're talking about. And, you know, I, over the years, People have asked us, we've, done, we've gone on to do almost a, geez, almost half a billion dollars of really transformative real estate projects, charter schools and theaters and more centers for educational excellence and public markets, uh, teacher housing, all these things. Um, and over the years, people have asked for data and stats and, you know, it's, you know, admittedly, like we haven't done a, a good enough job ch- tracking it. But what I do know when you get to talk about intangibles is that um, once a month, on a random morning, our team is going to be at the exit of the building where the teachers are leaving at 530 in the morning on a cold February day with like a hot spread of breakfast, right? right. And like bagels and juices and coffees. And we're going to take your books and we're going to carry them to your car so you can carry the food that's in your hands, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are, um, there are these intangibles out there, these ways to form relationships that like separate us from transactional. Um, right. That, that link us together in a way that, again, that, that continues to kind of make the impossible possible. One of the things, you know, about what that makes me think about something you just said, I was just talking with another organization about this, possibly doing some work with them, is this concept of measuring what matters. And that often can, you know, it matters to whom and how can we create participatory and inclusive measurement systems, Right. That it's not just what matters to the bank, although that's important. It's not just matters to the, you know, the policymakers, although that's important. It what matters to the people, right? And the, you know, the 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 idea that we have to quantify everything in a particular kind of way in order to demonstrate its impact, right? I mean, how do you measure the breakfast? How do you measure those moments? You know, these are moments that matter, and so, and there are ways of thinking about doing that, but it's capturing what matters from the people who are living in the environment, whether the organization, whether the neighborhood, whether the society, measuring what matters to them, because at the end of the day, if we want to have impact, we need to understand the impact we're having in the people's lives we're trying to touch and reach. Yeah, and I think is I think we always defer to kind of work when we think about that. Uh, and I, I'm a huge, believer in the power of marriage, right? And family. Um, and there are no statistics uh, when it comes to like your, your family, you're not tracking fights and arguments and agreements and points and all of those different things. And 
relationship, uh, especially in like close quarters is, is, is so important. And it is those intangible things every step of the way that, uh, that, that, that continue to be the glue that holds people together. I was thinking about installing a jumbotron in my house with a scoreboard so that it could be clear. But maybe maybe that says more about me than maybe I, th- I like your idea of not keeping score. Maybe it's a better way of doing it. The other way to measure what matters, you know. Yeah. No, I, I, but I think that's great. And, and it, 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 evoke, it evokes this interesting idea too that, that, you know, it seems like at the end of the day when it comes down to it, like we are talking about you know, to, to the way you phrase it in terms of how do we make the, the impossible possible is it seems literally through building relationship. Right. And so I think there's something very powerful about, you know, if we approach things from this social enterprise level, but at the same time, through the level of relationship, this is, I think the fundamental key for uh, how do we, you know, build this shared sense of like authorship and ownership. I like, I like the way you phrase that. Uh, because there is this notion too that we see it like relationships across the counter in, in Gary's research experience and your experience in terms of getting those 10 teachers to really just dig in and their first day and let them, you know, like enter the building with the sense of ownership. Uh, you know, these, I think this is such a, like a fundamental part, you know, maybe because it's just me as an anthropologist speaking too, but, <laughs> but I agree too, in terms of that, like, it is actually about these relationships. Right. And so right. like how we might move ourselves into the future in, in a better way. And I'm curious to get your, your thought on this, Tebow is, you know, how can we help empower others also to, to both take this mindset? I mean, in, in feel that it is, you know, part of our work to build into our opportunities if we're doing social entrepreneurship or just other kinds of programmatic elements that, um, you know, getting, I don't know, for lack of a better term, getting rid of just this idea that I own things in this, in a specific sense. And like, how do we, how do we kind of build the, we into it, right. Into, into the enterprises that we're doing and also just the, the communities that we're walking into. So part of it, I think I'm taking from this also is how do we more deeply listen right, to others and see what they're, where they're coming from and what their, what their needs are. Right. I mean, and that's like a, a great move that we've seen entering more and more into, into newer contexts. You know, I mean, just, in the history of design, it used to be architects would design a building and thought that was cool. And then it later became, wait, nobody can actually use that building or the furniture is uncomfortable or I can't get into the space or there's no wheelchair access. And the more and more we listen to community members and, and folks that that shared sense of ownership can become part of an equation. But it seems even here, we're getting even more radical in terms of just like opening up more of that space, that um, ownership and authorship too, that we can write the story together. Um, I think it's fundamentally important. So um, I don't know, a few reflections of what I'm taking away here in terms of that. So, so I guess like, what are we hopeful for? Like, how do we build that into the future for, for the next generation? You know, Adam, it's, it's interesting hearing you talk. I, when you, when the three of us are here talking about relationship, we're, we're, we're talking from a fairly like even playing field, right? We're mm-hmm. uh, all three of us are aspiring podcasters, right? Like we're all like somewhat entrepreneurial. Um, we're all mm-hmm. like deeply passionate about the things that we're doing. But there's a uh, there's a hierarchy in relationship too, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we need to examine, right? Um, I if I'm the uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company and there's a janitor that's cleaning the building, um, I can be super nice to him on my way out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but like, are we really and are we really in relationship, right? And so, I think that the what our this next generation needs to focus on is the like transfer of power. Uh, within a relationship um, that uh, uh, as we approach relationship, how do we do it in a way where we're both showing up as equals? And if we are coming from a higher place, um, our job is to find a way to kind of lower that and balance the um, balance the relationship where uh, that perceived hierarchy is eliminated. I think that's something and this is the first time I thought about this out loud that like we have done really well, right. Uh, in mm. the, in the global organizations that we've built, right. It's almost been second nature, but that has been, I think one of the deciding factors and the, the things that have allowed these things to succeed is being able to show up so humbly and level the playing field so that while at the end of the day, you know, I own the real estate, right. Um, mm. that, the people that live in the building and the people that are in the communities also feel that, that they have that, that, that same ownership. And so kind of tra- the transformation of power, I think is critical. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think and that, that's like an, a, a, um, yeah, I, I just, yes, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, what you said. Yeah. 
you know, and because it, it is one of the, I think it's also one of the challenges of our time. And I think that's what makes it so important because if I may, that's, I think, one of the things that we often hear no one can't about, right? We can't do that. We can't just change the, the power structure and like, have a more equal playing field. So that might tell us that we're onto something in terms of this is something that needs to change. Um, so I just want to you know, take a moment to kind of, as, as we're wrapping up here, say thank you so much for talking with us. It's been amazing to kind of hear your stories and, and think through some of the, the broader ideas as well as some of you, you know, again, like walking in the tin factory was, is fun. So um, um, just so, um, you know, we know we've got your book coming out. We're super excited to, to get into the hands of listeners. Um, and I know folks are really going to enjoy it and take a lot of stories and inspiration away from it too. So again, what I, I like about it both is that you're mixing your, your kind of personal stories in with these broader principles that we're talking about, thinking through the can't know and thinking through ownership and authorship. So um, there's a ton of great takeaways. So um, is there anything that, that, you know, if folks are picking it up for the first time here in a couple of weeks, um, what do you want them to know about the book? So, uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to, to, to hang with you guys for this. Uh, I, uh, look, I've spent five years writing this book. Uh, and I remember when I first started it, a friend of mine who had written a book said, it's going to take you five years. And I told him I thought he was crazy that, uh, <laughs> you know, not, I don't think anything had ever taken me five years to do. And like to the day, my friend was, was exactly right. And um, I think that the timing of the book is incredibly relevant right now, right? This is our world is the most confused it's ever been to a certain extent is the most divided that it's ever been. Um, the, you know, we're dealing with the great resignation where people are really waking up for the first time and saying, I want to live every moment of my life in the total pursuit of my purpose. Right. right, right. And, I, and I, what I really like about the book is we've all read business books, right. Um, we've all been lectured to, we've all taken courses that what I attempted to do was deliver 21 gripping, grip, gripping stories through 21 chapters that provide these aha moments of lessons learned. It's not me sitting here telling you, this is how you have to talk. These are the words you have to use. These are the things you need to think about. It's all done kind of through the power of, of teachable moments, which is how I was raised. You know, my dad's just an incredible hero of mine. And he never sat down and lectured me. He was like, you know, you shouldn't drink at a young age. You shouldn't, uh, you should always get A's, right? You should pick up trash when you see it on the street. You should treat others with love and respect. He just was himself, right? Which is... Oftentimes, the um, long road to success um, without instant gratification, and I'm dealing with it now with two young kids. The easiest thing is to like yell and scream, right, and to prove your point. The hardest thing to do is just continue to be yourself and lead through example. And I, I think that's what this book does. Um, mm. And I think that there are the powerful lessons that are going to help. Ah, geez, really, this next generation of really like passionate world citizens and entrepreneurs and anybody. Oh, just de determined to make our world a better place. Um, we'll, we'll deliver those those, those lessons in a, in a really meaningful and profound way. Right on. Cool. Um, well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We're super excited um, to have the time to get to hang and talk with you as well. And, um, you know, excited to get the book shared out with, with folks. So we're, we're excited to kind of preempt it. This is, this is a exciting that we actually had to talk to you before it, it comes out. Um, that's a, a gift to us because we don't always get to do this. So um, this is a, a good timing as well to, to help share and spread the, spread the good word. So thanks. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you guys so much. We want to thank T-Ball Mannequin for joining us today on the podcast. As you noted, he's the co-founder of Seawall, a community organization for people who believe in reimagining the real estate industry as we know it. I think it's one of the most exciting projects that we've heard of in a while. It was really great to discuss his new book, Larger Than Yourself, chronicling his many experiences around the world. You can find T-Ball's book information as well as information on Peace Players and Seawall in our show notes. So let's turn it over to you. you know, in what areas do you see opportunities to make a difference? And how do you think real estate could be reconfigured to be more inclusive and change-oriented? Or how have you seen sports make an impact in bringing people together? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Let's shoot some hoops or join us on our LinkedIn page. Let's find out together. And as always, thank you for your continued support of the podcast, making this show and all the others in the past and in the future possible. Make sure to keep your contributions, your ideas, your perspectives, and your financial support coming. It's always helpful. You can always make a contribution to support the cost of the podcast through our website, experiencexdesign.com. Also, if you want to sponsor an EXT episode, send us a message and let's chat about the possibilities. 
You can as well share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And finally, if you want to subscribe, stay up to date on all the EXD news in the EXD community, head over to our website, enter your email, and stay on top of all the EXD happenings. And with that, hope everyone has a safe travel holiday. Hope everyone is healthy, well, be kind to each other as you're driving and traveling, be part of the change, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.